Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is episode number 1072 with neuroscientist Dr. Andrew Huberman. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Robert Greene said, the need for certainty is the greatest disease the mind faces. And Eckhart Tolle said, unease, anxiety, tension, stress, worry, all forms of fear are caused by too much future and not enough presence. My guest today is neuroscientist Andrew Huberman, who is a professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at Stanford. He also runs Huberman Lab, which studies brain states such as fear, courage, anxiety, calm, and how we can better move in and out of them through practices like visual cues, breath work, movement, and supplementation. And we've had him on before, and it just blew up the internet, it blew up our podcast, it blew up on audio, on YouTube, and it's gotten millions of views and listens through our entire ecosystem. So we wanted to bring him back on for another powerful episode, and we had to break it up in two parts because it was just so much juicy, incredible conversation. So this will be part one of two, and in part one, we discuss how to use the mind to our benefit when we experience stress, fear, or trauma. This will truly support you in your life. The two types of stress that we all face and how to deal with them practically. The different breathing techniques that you should be practicing consistently. The importance of sleep and how it affects the brain waves that we have. Huberman's thoughts on the law of attraction. This was pretty fascinating. The neuroscience behind the law of attraction and so much more in this part one. It is powerful, it is juicy. Part one's amazing, and part two is gonna blow you away as well. If this is your first time here, then make sure to click the subscribe button over on Apple Podcasts or Spotify right now, as well as give us a rating and review at the end of this episode. Let us know what you enjoyed the most about this. And also, while you're listening, please share this with a friend. Just send them a copy of this link, lewishouse.com slash 1072, or copy and paste the link wherever you're listening, and text it to a friend right now, or post it on your social media. And tag me and Andrew Huberman as well to let us know that you are listening. Okay, in just a moment, the one and only Dr. Andrew Huberman. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness. I am so excited we've got Andrew Huberman in the house. My man, good to see you, brother. Great to be back. The last interview we had with you, uh, almost a million views on YouTube, millions of views on social media, thousands of comments people want to hear more about this because when people are dealing with extreme amounts of stress overwhelm and anxiety they want solutions and you are uh, a neuroscientist professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at stanford you've also got huberman lab up there and you're really studying the way the brain works and how we can overcome the challenges of fear of stress 
and optimize these things. So I'm excited that you're back here because the last uh, content we had really served a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I think there's just so much more to understand about how our brains work uh, in connection to our body and overcoming fear. How do we become more courageous? How do we deal with managing stress? All this. So I want to dive into more of it. And one of the first things I want to ask you is, uh, when things are really tough in life, when people are really stressed out, they've had some type of traumatic event, whether it's the loss of the job, the pandemic, whatever it may be, how can people use their mind to then push past pain? Or is that not something we should be thinking about pushing past pain? But how do we use the mind under some type of traumatic experience mm -hmm. for our benefit? Okay. Um, it's an excellent easy, easy question. Yeah, to start with. <laughs> it's an excellent question. It has a couple different uh, answers because there are a couple different categories depending on what of answer depending on what people are dealing with. Right. So I think um, all trauma, anxiety, fears, they all map back to stress in some way. Now you can have stress without trauma. You can have anxiety without trauma, but you can't really have trauma without stress and anxiety. So even though there aren't really strict definitions of the boundaries between trauma and stress and fear, I think it's fair to say that trauma is a fear and or stress response that's happening at the wrong times, right? It's sort of carrying over from an experience that's making life uncomfortable or in some cases exceedingly challenging. For example? So um, someone has a you know sexual assault, mm -hmm. um, somebody sees a car accident or is in a car accident, um, veterans come back from overseas, there's kind of first person trauma where something happens to somebody and then there's third person trauma where somebody sees something terrible happen. Mm -hmm. There's grief and so there are a lot of categories and so we don't wanna complicate the, the landscape and the answer but I think it's important for people to understand that the stress response is at the core of all of this. And when we talk about stress, I think it's also important that we divide that into two kinds of stress because okay. it defines the two approaches that people can take to combat stress, fear, anxiety. What are the two types of stress? Okay, the two types of stress are, we. the one is the one we're almost all familiar with because when we hear stress, we think pupils dilating, hands shaking, heart beating, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, are really upset, you're stuck in traffic, something is really bothering you, you're angry, you're having the, the fight or flight response that you know, that phrase gets thrown around a lot. And in that, those circumstances, it's very important that people take control of their mind and their body in a way that allows themselves to calm down, to reduce the so-called stress response. And we can talk about tools to do that, that are very concrete and that are very reliable. There's another side of the stress response. So what would that, that stress be called? What's that type of stress? Ah, uh, so um, unfortunately there's no name <laughs> For this this is one of the important things maybe we'll figure it out today okay. maybe your audience will figure it out yeah. they're, they're a smart bunch and they're living this stuff too so um unfortunately there isn't a word for this but um when this I, is one type of stress this is one type of stress which is you're you're too activated you're too alert you're too agitated and you want to be less alert less mm. activated and less agitated the alert stress that's right. We could call it the alert stress, well, hyper alert stress. Hyper alert stress. Hyper alert. Let's just do that for sake of conversation uh -huh. today. And we are by no means a nomenclature committee, <laughs> so we can always revise later. Yeah. There's another side of stress, which is when there are a lot of things happening in the world, pandemics, you can't work because they've shut, there's another shutdown, or um, there's 
strife in your life or things are really challenging and you're feeling exhausted and you can't get mobilized and alert enough. Mm. And this has never really been cleanly laid out for people that in what I call the whole process is one of limbic friction. Okay, so the limbic system are these areas deep in the brain. Limbic literally means edge. They're near the edge of the brain. Mm. And when we're stressed, there's a lot of activity in these brain regions. And then we got this, our forebrain, our prefrontal cortex for the aficionados. And when we're in a thinking and calm and deliberate and rational manner, when we can control our body and our mind, it's called top-down processing. We're, we're controlling ourselves. But there's a lot of friction with that limbic pathway. I promise I'll get to the practices uh -huh. soon. So <clears throat> when there's this friction, we can call it limbic friction for sake of discussion. There, you can't control all those impulses and all that anxiety or fatigue for too long. And in fact, as you get more tired, or if someone has frontal damage, if they have brain damage to the frontal lobes, what you find is they become more impulsive. Mm. When they feel like sleeping, they just sleep, even if it's socially inappropriate. When they feel like yelling or screaming or swearing, they just, they just do that. And so mm. there's two kinds of limbic friction. One is when we're too activated and we wanna calm down and we're trying to say, okay, calm down. Don't say, don't say the thing that you know you shouldn't say. <laughs> don't do the thing you, don't, you, know, you shouldn't do. And then there's the other kind of limbic friction, which is the world is happening really fast and we feel buried, we're overwhelmed and we need to get more activated. We need more energy. We need more energy. We need to be mm -hmm. able to lean into life and we're feeling overwhelmed. What's that called? Well, we, we should come up with a name now. <laughs> so that would be- um, Exhaustion like stress. Exhaustion stress yeah. or- um, Overwhelm stress. Or, or overwhelm stress. Yeah. Or um, Now, a lot of people start giving these names to things that sound almost like clinical syndromes. Mm. which sometimes they are, but they'll say things like adrenal burnout, which actually doesn't exist. <laughs> adrenal, adrenal fatigue. The, uh, now, there is something called um, adrenal insufficiency syndrome, which is a real medical condition where people can't actually produce enough adrenaline. Mm -hmm. But most of us have enough adrenaline in our bodies to last 200 years, two lifetimes. So you, the adrenals don't really burn out. What happens is people are so overactivated. They're in this alertness hyper alert stress for so long that eventually they kind of crash into the over fatigue stress, okay? So one, one turns into the other one. Right, so the first thing for anyone trying to navigate stress, and then we'll talk about trauma, yep. is to understand in what kind of stress they're dealing with. Are you exhausted and having a hard time getting your energy up? Mm -hmm. Or is your energy too high and you're having a hard time getting your energy down? Mm. Because the solutions to those are often quite different. So on the previous um, time we met, uh, we talked about a, a tool for calming the body very quickly, which is this double inhale, long exhale. Typically the inhales are done through the nose, the exhale through the mouth. So the physiological sigh, which was discovered by scientists in the 30s, and then Jack Feldman's group at UCLA has really identified the underlying brain circuits, and then my lab is now looking at this stuff in humans in a kind of more clinical setting. That double inhale, followed by an exhale, we know is the fastest real-time tool for taking one's state of alertness down. The hyper-alert right. stress. Right, you're not yeah. gonna crash into sleep, but you're going from, hyper, you're not feeling good, you're too agitated, you wanna calm down. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about that tool is it speaks to a principle which is it's very hard to control the mind with the mind. 
So when you're stressed, <laughs> just telling yourself, don't stress, don't stress, don't stress, calm down, calm down, rarely works. It also rarely works to tell someone else to calm down. To relax. Hey, relax. Yeah. Usually it has the opposite effect. <laughs> don't tell me to relax. And it, and it can be damaging for relationships. If you've uh, ever, you know, someone's really stressed and you tell them to relax, sometimes it actually can create more friction and they don't sure. feel supported. What should they do in that moment? They should look to the body. The nervous system includes the brain, but also all the connections to the body and yeah. back again. And so the, when you can't control your mind, you want to do something purely mechanical, like the physiological sigh. Because that, you know, once you take control of the body in that way, then the mind mm. starts to fall under the umbrella of this top-down <clears throat> control again. Top-down control is what children and puppies don't have. You know, if, if, if we had a, Yeah, I've got a 10-year-old bulldog, his name's Costello. He does, barely does anything now, because he's Costello. But, he, but when he was a puppy, everything was a stimulus. He would walk over, pick up a cord, and chew on it, then he'd drop it, and he'd pivot to something else. And it's because they, have, they literally have no prefrontal cortex wired into this limbic system. They don't have this suppression so there's no friction. The limbic system just does whatever it wants. And actually in humans with frontotemporal dementia and in certain people who have frontotemporal brain damage, they become mm -hmm. very impulsive. Well, my dad went through, I don't know if I talked about this the last time, so. but my dad had a, uh, a traumatic car accident 15 years ago. It was 15 years ago, a couple months ago, where a car went on top of his car and went through the windshield and the bumper hit him in his head, pretty much split open his head. His girlfriend at the time was holding his head together, went to the hospital airlifted in a helicopter, was in a coma for three months. And it's been a 15 year journey where we had to teach him, reteach him how to write, how to talk, how to walk, like everything, where it was almost like he was my father in his body, but his mind was having to relearn like a child. And even today when I see him and visit him, he'll he'll swear just compulsively, he'll, he'll do things that maybe aren't appropriate because he probably doesn't have the I don't know, you can probably tell me better as a neuroscientist, but what happens when someone has brain damage, especially in the front uh, frontal cortex? What, what happens to the brain? Yeah, so these top, when I say top-down control, there's literally a set of wires, we call mm. them axons, from the prefrontal cortex that suppresses these impulsive behaviors in the limbic system. And when there's damage, it's essentially removing that break. Mm. And you know, in adults, uh, older adults especially, because their behaviors aren't quite as, um, you know, because they're older, they're, they aren't necessarily going to walk over and punch people or, or scream out <laughs> right. explicatives and these right. kinds of things, um, fortunately. Although sometimes you see that, sometimes you see that, um, sadly. But those circuits aren't functioning well. And in young children, if you ever go to a classroom, uh, I guess now kids are home a lot, but in a ki typical kindergarten classroom, what you'll notice is that some of the kids can sit very still. And other kids are rocking back and forth and yes. moving around a ton. And the teacher and is constantly trying to... people. Yeah. I was one of those kids. Yeah, like, me too. You know, like, exactly. Like, <laughs> trying to corral the children. And children mature at different rates. Mm. And what's what you're seeing there is the different maturation of their frontal cortex. When you see a child that's very deliberate and can really control their speech and their behavior, you're looking at a child that has a lot of top-down control. The frontal cortex is really mm. engaged. Now... Is that genetic? Is that... Uh, it's probably a mixture probably a mixture of environmental influences and mm -hmm. genetic, like most things. Yeah. And I'm not trying to just hedge here. Sure. I think, um, you know, like for instance, I have a, a niece who um, is adopted and um, she's very deliberate and very calm. And so we, you know, we wonder, you know, what, what, you know, is this genetic? Is it nature nurture? You know, there's probably some genetic bias. And then there's probably also 
um, a lot of environmental mm -hmm. influences. I mean, a lot of what we're taught in school and at home, because a lot of kids are homeschooled now, is about what not to do. Right. You know, sit still, don't, do don't say this, don't say that. You know, we get the please, say please and thank you, you know, you know, sit up straight, you know, do your dishes kind of stuff. But a lot of the, the don't language hmm. is designed to around these things of top-down control, which yeah. set up a lot of important social constraints. Right. And we've all felt this as adults too. Where in two ways, it becomes really extreme when we can't control that limbic system. One is when we're, when we're very fatigued. When we're fatigued or we're sick or we're in pain, physical pain, chances are when something bothers us, we're closer to that threshold of saying the thing that we wish we would We don't have patience. Say. Exactly. No patience. That's right. So how do we learn to have patience when we are hyper alert or overwhelm, exhaust, stress? Okay, so when we are in hyper alert, there's a mechanism associated with that that makes our internal world measure time differently. What happens under those conditions is you feel like the external world is moving very slowly. Mm. I think I might've mentioned this in the, our previous meeting, yeah. but when you're really stressed on the hyper alert side, it seems like the world is going very slowly. You're gonna, just knowing that, and knowing that it's likely that you're gonna feel impatient and if the world is moving much too slow. Sort of like if you're, if you're trying to get someplace on time and the person in front of you doesn't know you're where like, you're going. I was the guy not knowing where I was going this morning. And so, and we can't see each other in cars. So you think, what is this person doing? Oh my goodness. And they're just looking for the right turn. Yeah. You know? So there's that. And then when we are fatigued, it seems like the world is going really fast, okay? And so for people who are exhausted, Everything feels overwhelming. Now, of course, the rate that things are actually moving in the world is the same, but the perception is that it's just too much and we can't cope. So we talked about a tool to calm oneself. Mm -hmm. The reason I like the physiological side is we, we are all equipped with the pathway. If people wanna know if there's some medically oriented folks out there, or if you wanna teach this to other folks, there's a nerve called the phrenic nerve, P-H-R-E-N-I-C, that goes from the brain down to the diaphragm that controls that and then controls the lungs. Mm. And so when you decide, okay, I'm gonna use the side, the physiological side to calm myself, in a way you're engaging top-down control because you're, you're taking control of your internal landscape mm -hmm. rather than trying to take control of your thinking, which is very hard. You can't fix your mind with your mind sometimes. Trying to control the mind with the mind is like trying to grab fog. It's just gonna keep moving, right? If you've ever tried to grab or, or smoke, it just moves. It doesn't, it's, it's vapors, you're never gonna grab it. The key is to, is, to, um, is to take control of the system by taking control of a real physical entity, this phrenic nerve. Um, and the reason I describe this stuff is not to put a lot of unnecessary detail, but I think when people realize this isn't something that you build up over time and then are able to do, that you literally have a wire set of wires that goes down to your diaphragm, this muscle in your ab ab abdomen that can move your lungs. And then as you blow off carbon dioxide, when you do that exhale, you, your brain starts to calm down and then your mind, the top down control of the cortex can start taking control of the limbic <clears throat> system again. It's like, you're, it's almost like you're, you're losing control of the automobile and you're trying to steer, but really there's another lever that if you just pull it, then the, state, the steering wheel will stabilize mm. for you. So that's the way to think about the physiological sigh. On the other side of things, when you're feeling overwhelmed and fatigued, there are two ways to approach that. First is the kind of foundation of fatigue which is almost always poor sleep and scheduling of sleep. This is something that doesn't get discussed a lot. And I don't think I've discussed this on any podcast previously, but you know, getting better at sleeping is a whole set of practices. 
but sleep is a slow tool. It's not a real-time tool. Because mm. if you're feeling exhausted and you have to get up and have your day, deal with children, deal with work, deal with life, we can talk about how to get better at sleeping. But in real time, what you want to do is you want to bring more alertness into the system. Focus. Focus and alertness. The way to do that is to take advantage of a very well-established medical fact. All medical students learn this. All MBs know this, which is that there's a direct relationship between how you breathe and your heart rate. Hmm. And so I'll give a little bit of the background and then I'll give the specific practice sure. just so that um, people understand where this is coming from. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host When you get a new car or a new home, your first reaction might be to say things like, oh yeah, or I can't believe it, or booyah. But what you really want to say is the one thing that can get you the help you need. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm is there with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And when you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too. Too. in person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app State Farm lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I don't know about you, but when around 3 p.m. hits, I find myself craving the right refreshment to get me through that mid-afternoon slump. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea is full-flavored sweet tea, but without the sugar and the calories. It might take several bottles for you to believe that a delicious sweet tea can really have zero sugar and zero calories. But you know what they say, life is full of surprises. Or in this case, full of flavor. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea. Try it to believe it. For 20% off your next 12-pack, head to Amazon and use promo code 20PUREleaf. That's promo code 20PUREleaf for 20% off. When we inhale, when we inhale, it almost feels like everything's moving up. But actually what happens is our diaphragm moves down. Okay, so when we inhale, our diaphragm moves down. When that happens, our heart literally gets a little bit bigger. The volume of the heart gets a little bit bigger, which means that whatever blood in there is moving per unit time a little bit slower. And there's a set of neurons in the heart called the sinoatrial node that sends a signal to the brain and says, hey, blood flow is slowing down. And the brain sends a signal back to the heart and says, okay, let's speed up and speeds up the heart rate. So the short, concise way to put it is when you inhale more vigorously or longer, you're speeding up your heart rate. This is, uh, this actually, there's a name for it in the medical community, but the important thing to understand is as you inhale, you're sending a neural signal to your heart to speed up. And when you exhale, the diaphragm moves up, the heart gets a little bit smaller, literally, because there's less space there. Then there's a signal sent to the brain 
And the brain sends a signal back and says, slow down the heart rate. And so, so this is happening people, quickly. So if you inhale, it's speeding up. That's right. If you exhale, it's slowing it that's down. That's right. So if you want to become more alert, you actually can just simply make your inhales a little bit more vigorous or a little bit longer than your exhale. So if, let's say you get up Quicker in the morning. In, or longer inhale, uh, shorter exhale. That's right. To, not To speed up your heart rate and to be more alert. Not longer exhale, double intake. Right. So, shorter, yeah. the, so longer or more vigorous inhales will speed up your heart rate and make you more alert. Longer or more vigorous or more vigorous exhales will slow down your heart rate and make you less alert. Wow. And there's this has a name, which is as as you know, it's a certain kind of arrhythmia, but that makes it sound bad. This is actually what's happening all the time. This is the basis of heart rate variability. When people talk about heart rate variability is good. You know that you don't want your heart rate to be one level all day, high or low. A lot of people don't realize that. They think, oh, I got a nice slow heart rate. And you think, well, <laughs> all day long. Well, you're asleep then. That's right. <laughs> well, well, slow heart rate is better than high heart, artificially high, you know, sorry, excessively high heart rate. But you don't want your heart rate to be like this. You want your heart rate to go through these fluctuations. Heart rate variability is good. Why? Because heart rate variability reflects the activation of what's typically called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the brain's ability to slow down and calm the nervous system. So mm. a, when your heart rate is going like this, it means that your heart rate is speeding up and then your brain is slowing it down. Your heart rate is speeding it up and your brain is slowing it down. And that's what's happening all day long as you're moving through things in a kind of calm alert way. But when you get that troubling text message or you see a post or a comment and you go, and all of a sudden your heart rate just goes and you feel like you immediately want to respond or you're going to say the thing that maybe you shouldn't say or you're going to do the thing that maybe you shouldn't do <laughs> or you just want to be thought more thoughtful and more targeted in your response. The key is to slow down the heart rate by making your exhales longer mm -hmm. or more vigorous. So it could simply be and then shorter inhales, longer exhales or do the physiological sigh. Or if you wake up in the morning and you're experiencing the other kind of stress, which is you look at your Sluggish phone in the news and like, the world is overwhelming me. My life is overwhelming. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't even know what sequence I'm gonna do things in. You're just discombobulated. And a lot of people struggle with this. The key is to do a few breaths, even while you're getting out of bed and, and preparing your morning coffee or water or whatever it is, and just start breathing in a way that's inhale emphasized. Which, Sounds weird, but basically what you're doing is you're speeding up your heart rate. At some point, usually within only two or three of those breaths, you're gonna feel more alert, and wow. then you can just go back to breathing normally. So you don't have to do this for hours, you do this for no. a few moments or minutes. That's right, and, and while I'm a fan of breath work as its own thing, because breath work can teach you how to operate these levers in your brain and body, so to speak, breath work is a dedicated practice that you do away from these stressful events, whereas Learning to control your heart rate and thereby your mind using your breathing. So it goes breathing, heart rate, mind in that sequence. So if your mind isn't where you want it to be, don't start with the mind. Start with your breathing, then which will control your heart rate, which will then allow you to control your mind. So don't, don't think your way out of a, a moment of stress. Feel, breathe your way out of this moment That's of stress. Right. That's right. And, and one of the things, and I'm, I'm certain there are going to be people out there listening to this saying, wait a second, 
the yoga, the yogis and the yoga community has been talking about this for centuries. What are you doing? You know, this is just a re recasting of what we already know. I agree. I agree. Within the science community, these things have been given crazy names like arrhythmias mm -hmm. and heart rate variability and um, the diaphragm and the phrenic nerve. And so the, the language of science has known all about this for many centuries also, but it's been shrouded by language. And the yoga community has known about this for a long time, but it's been shrouded by language. So by bringing this discussion forth, I'm by, I just wanna be clear that I, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel or pretend that I invented the wheel by any stretch. I'm trying to say that we all have these circuits, these levers in our body that we can that we can pull and push. And people learn how to do this intuitively, but we're never really taught the underlying mechanisms. And I do believe that once, and yoga's not big on mechanisms. They're very good on naming and on, you know, yogis in different areas of the world, when they say something, they usually know what the other one is talking about. Mm -hmm. Scientists do as well. But mechanism, if people can just understand a little bit about why the heart slows down when you exhale more than you inhale, or why, the heart speeds up when you inhale more than you exhale. I do believe that having that knowledge in the mind allows people in a moment of stress to say, oh, I understand what's happening to me and therefore I should go to this particular tool. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I do understand that one doesn't need to understand how an engine works in order to drive a car, but you do need to know how the control panels work. <laughs> right, right, right. This is why we send people to driving school yeah. and why we don't let 10 year olds drive. Um, although I'm sure there's some out there. Yeah, yeah, um, on a farm somewhere, yeah. Well, actually there was this one news thing, I don't know if you've seen this, where a, a state trooper pulls, or a CHP or somebody pulls over a car that's kind of weaving through the lanes on, and they pull over, and I think the kid was six years oh old. Oh my gosh. He actually managed to get onto the freeway. How? And he was driving the left-hand lane, and his driving was pretty bad, but he was below the- That's crazy. Wheel. Well, that just tells you that the young mind is eager to steer things and press pedals and things of that sort. And explore. We are definitely not recommending that. <laughs> but this is very different than driving a car in the sense that all the panels and all the controls are there. Mm. We have, we're all, most people are taught how to drive a car. We, most people are not taught how to drive their nervous system. And so a lot of what I'm talking about here is just one language, one version mm -hmm. of the language of how to drive and control your nervous system. And you can't drive your nervous system with thoughts and controlling your mind alone. You have to connect the whole vehicle is what I'm hearing. You can't just steer thoughts. You need to also use the brakes or also right. use different levers, which is the entire car. That's right. It's, it's very hard to control the mind with the mind. It can be done. There are people that are, get better at that. Right, maybe it's but, a practice over time. But, but using, I say, when in moments of stress, either excessively alert stress or excessively fatigued stress, look to the body because mm. there are mechanisms that have been built into the body for hundreds of <laughs> thousands of years yeah. designed to do this. Now, the reason I can say that is that the physiological side, the double inhale, exhale, is controlled by a specific set of neurons in the brainstem that Jack Feldman's lab discovered. When children or adults have been sobbing very hard, or when they're out of air in a claustrophobic environment, <laughs> they naturally do that yeah. to reopen these little sacs in the uh -huh. lungs. Now, inhale-emphasized breathing can be practiced in a way, sort of away from stress in a kind of offline approach that can be beneficial for raising what we call stress threshold. So there's a whole other way to look at stress, which is to say, how do I get calmer <clears throat> in the mind when my body is freaking out? There you go. 
And uh, I think people will recognize some of what I'm about to describe as kind of Wim Hof-like breathing. Mm -hmm. It has also traditionally been called Tumo breathing. Some people call it super oxygenation breathing, although then there are other people like Patrick McEwen and company that will say, well, you're actually blowing off more carbon dioxide than you are bringing in oxygen. And so the naming again now is a mess. Yoga so, Nidra breathe, breathing. So Yoga Nidra yeah. is exhale emphasized. Okay. But um, Tumo breathing, Wim Hof breathing, and super, what sometimes is called super oxygenation breathing involves uh -huh. doing a lot of inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. It's hyperventilating. Uh -huh. It's deliberate hyperventilating. <laughs> yeah. and followed by exhales and breath holds, mm -hmm. followed by inhales and, and breath holds. Yeah. Now, the repetitive breathing more quickly and deeply, this kind of thing, or some variant of that, all through the mouth or all through the nose, brings up the heart rate and causes the adrenal glands, which sit right above the kidneys, to secrete adrenaline. They make you more alert. And we know this, my lab has been looking at this with a number of different measures, exploring the nervous system and the periphery, like the heart rate, and you see these big inflections in heart rate when people do this. Typically, it makes people feel agitated at first. They feel a little bit agitated. And then when you exhale and hold your breath for 15 seconds or so, or longer in some cases, if somebody's skilled at this, what you're doing essentially is you're learning to be calm as your body is flooded with all this adrenaline and the heart rate is going. You're learning to calm your mind. That's right. So you're learning actually to separate the mind mm -hmm. body. Your body might be shaking, That's vibrating. Right. And you're learning to suppress that. And you're just... And that mm -hmm. is 100% top-down control. Mm. What you're doing in those moments is you're learning to take your forebrain and say, fight the temptation to move. Fight the temptation to breathe. Now, I don't want to suggest anyone do this to the point where it's unsafe. You should never do this anywhere near water, even in a puddle, because people have drowned, people have died doing high oxygenation, breath packing type and of passing things. Out passing and out. Passing yeah. out, it, it can be quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. So people need to take the appropriate precautions before they do it. If people have pulmonary issues, it can, there are, you know, it can be problematic. If people get trained in how to do it properly, mm -hmm. it can be relatively safe. Okay, and my lab has been doing experiments um, on a, now we have more than 100 people doing different types of breathing and exploring how it affects the mind and the body. This particular pattern of breathing, <sighs> 25 or 30 times followed by an exhale and a hold, and then a big inhale and a hold, sometimes doing more in mm -hmm. inhaling and exhaling type repetitive breathing. That is really somebody training themselves how to self-induce stress. And we know from some good literature mm. and some emerging science that's still ongoing, that it is possible to get comfortable in these agitated states so that your mind is okay, feels okay, when the body is feeling like it wants to tremble or move, that you can learn to suppress that activity. The ice bath is another good example of mm -hmm. this. Some people go straight to the ice bath because cold water will almost always induce a low level of stress in people. You have to, you have to kind of fight it. Even if you learn to love it. You still have to every time jumping right. in there. Okay, I gotta con right. control the mind essentially to that's calm. Right. Exactly, so the body is saying, this is really cold. <laughs> Get this out. is really cold. Get, Get out. out now. And you're pushing back on that and it's top-down control. Mm -hmm. It's pure top-down control. And you could do this any number of ways. There's actually a, uh, something called the hour of pain which is, um, before you jump to conclusions, the, um, the hour of pain was actually described to me by a, a friend of mine, a former military special operations guy, who said that you, they place you, this wasn't through military, but this is a kind of a, a outside the military Extracurricular activities. Yeah, extracurricular activity. activities, of placing you into one position on, uh, on the floor, and you have to stay there for an hour. 
which can be excruciating. There's so much limbic friction where you want to move so badly because the stabilizing muscles of the body and the feedback in our muscular skeletal system says, move, move, move. I just want to move the tiniest bit. And so all that practice is, it's just a different version of the ice bath. Yes. It's you're learning top-down control. So, you know, we started off with a question about trauma. Yes. And we'll get there. <laughs> but I think it's very important just to kind of summarize that people understand to just ask themselves the question, if I, am I feeling too much agitation or am I feeling too much exhaustion? If it's too much agitation, emphasize exhales and do the physiological sigh. Yoga Nidra is also a wonderful practice that is kind of the mirror image of uh, superoxygenation breathing. It involves long exhale breathing, lying down on your back, completely relaxing your body, mm -hmm. and learning to completely turn off thinking, which sounds hard, but you can learn how to do it very quickly if you do that practice for about 10 minutes a day. Yeah. It literally means yoga sleep. And probably the most commented thing we have on the previous interview is where are the links for this yoga nidra okay. stuff? So we're going to get that. So this before time. I leave today, <laughs> I'll send, there are several, but um, people can go on YouTube. Um, some of the better ones out there, these are all cost free. Um, Kamini Desai has a really wonderful one that she, I also just happen to like her voice, so uh -huh. it works for me. Um, there's a guy named Liam Gillen who has one. If you like a male Irish voice, there's that. They're all, you have to pick sure. a voice that works for you. Yeah. Um, so I'll make some suggestions, but if people don't like the particular voice that's walking them through the yoga find nidra, a different one find here. a different voice. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's cool. So that's a practice that you can do offline, meaning not in the moment of stress, that will allow you to learn how to relax more. Mm -hmm. Then on the fatigue side, if you're in motion in the morning or in the afternoon and you need to keep going, you need to keep studying, you need to drive to the airport to pick someone up and you're exhausted, the, please don't drive if you're really, really exhausted, but inhale emphasize breathing. Making your inhales just a little bit longer or more vigorous than your exhales will speed up your heart rate and will make you more alert. So deeper inhale, shorter exhale. Yeah, so it looks yeah. something like, It'll speed it up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For And even two or three of those, and you'll notice your heart rate will pick up because there's a neural signal from the brainstem sent to the heart to speed up the amount of blood flow. But at the end of the day, what I'm hearing you say is you can control the mind, the body or the mind with the mind to an extent mm -hmm. for, for moments or even extended periods of time, hours maybe. But really, we need to be thinking the mind and the body connection at all times. That's right. Because if you stop breathing, if you're or if you're only doing short breaths the whole time for a whole day, it's going to affect the body right. and the mind. And if you're, um, so it's it's using the body, using the breath, using it where it's connected to the brain to constantly support you throughout the day. But if you're just like <laughs> all day, it'll help you get to a certain point, but then it'll be detrimental to your health. Right. So these these breathing practices are about shifting the gears. But yes. they're not something that you continue doing throughout all your day. day. Yeah. Really what I've described here are hardwired, meaning we were all born mm -hmm. with these neurons and connections in our body. We were all born with these organs to be able to do these things. We, there's not a lot of learning involved. <clears throat> Once you know how to do it, it works the first time, it works every time. Yes. But it's sort of like shifting gears. Uh, there aren't too many manual transmissions these days. But let's say you're driving <laughs> down downhill and it's going too fast. You would. If This is like taking it into a a lower gear, so then you slow down. You're not gonna constantly be riding the clutch, right? Mm -hmm. or you're not gonna constantly be in the shifting mode or riding the brake. Some people do that, but that's <laughs> not good, right? You don't wanna have to do that. Just like if you're going uphill, you might have to hit on the gas a little bit, otherwise you're not gonna get up that hill, but at some point you switch gears 
and then you're just cruising up the yeah, hill. Yeah, exactly. Right? So it's a transmission system mm. rather than you're supposed to breathe this way all day or breathe that way this all is day. smart. And the, the fast breathing followed by exhales and breath holds, the super oxygenation, Tumo, Wim Hof type breathing, uh-huh. I look at that as learning how to drive on, um, on a s- slick pavement. You know, it, it's, it's self-induced stress. It's like taking your car to a, a parking lot. You know, when you, a kid's learning to drive, I was teaching a kid to drive recently. You teach them to drive, you go through the neighborhood, you do things, but when you really wanna learn how to, for instance, drive through puddles, or mm-hmm. drive in fog, or drive in heavy rain, you kind of want to be in a parking lot or a, a, safe, environment. a safe environment for that. You don't want to be on a, you know, on the Audubon, right? <laughs> so you, these are ways in which you can teach yourself how to navigate the bad weather of the, yes. of the nervous system. So you're prepared for when it comes. That's right. Yeah. And, I, and I have to say from personal experience and from some emerging data, when I say emerging data, I mean studies in my lab and other labs that are still ongoing, it does appear that when people self-induce this stress, it can be beneficial for, I'm gonna quote a colleague of mine, my colleague David Spiegel, who's our associate chair of psychiatry says, it's not just about the state that you're in, the state of mind that you're in, it's how you got there and whether Mm. or not you had anything to do with it. Mm. So when you self-induce stress and then you say, oh, I can calm my mind even though my body is feeling agitated, that's a very positive experience for Mm -hmm. many people. Whereas when someone else is causing your stress and you're trying to calm down, it feels like you're battling 25 different things. So these are skills that anyone can develop. Um, And they are skills that essentially require information of what to do, but zero training. I mean, so it's like, I'm sure you played football. I didn't, Uh you can probably, I'm certain you can throw a football way better than I can. That took some some learning. Yeah. It would take me a long, long time, maybe forever, to be able to try and approximate <laughs> that skill level. But these are things that we can all do right away. Yeah, yeah. And so now I think we've kind of spelled out a, a two tools on either side. Physiological size for, for calming down in real time. Exhale emphasized breathing of the yoga nidra sort, maybe even doing yoga nidra 10 to 20 or 30 minutes a couple times a week daily if you want to teach your nervous system to calm down and then also having tools that emphasize inhales so longer more vigorous inhales mm-hmm. or doing an offline practice of some point during your day you decide i'm going to do five or ten minutes of this more rapid breathing followed by some breath holds yeah and provided those are designated safe for you the 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 super oxygenated breathing you decide is safe for you I'm not aware of any dangers of the exhale emphasized breathing at all, um, but people should always approach any new thing with caution, of course. But once you have those four tools in hand, you've really learned how to press on the accelerator, so that's inhaling more than you exhale. You've learned how to drive faster, be comfortable at higher speeds. That's kind of like the Wim Hof type breathing. Mm-hmm. You're comfortable at high speeds. It's like, oh, I'm, I can drive 65 and feel calm. I'm yeah. good here, whereas previously, you Range Rover Sport leads by example. Picture this, assertive on-road performance meets commanding all-terrain capability. That's the third-generation Range Rover Sport, which is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet. This vehicle redefines sporting luxury, offering an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. Now available in sleek, new stealth pack, Carpathian gray exterior wrapped in satin protective film with black accents and black brake calipers. Inside the Range Rover Sport, advanced cabin technologies 
like active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. And let's not forget about the award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment system. Enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Wow, that's like a spa day while on the go. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. So listen, we all know life is full of yada yada, like those quote unquote free trials that somehow still charge your card for something or when companies have those sneaky gotchas hiding deep in the fine print. And I know you've dealt with yada yada before, like those bills that keep going up and up for no reason at all. Or when budget airlines promise a cheap fare, but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying more than you would have somewhere else. And yes, it is possible to outsmart yada yada, like triple checking airline deals to make sure all you need is already included, but you don't take yada yada in life. So don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. As well as learning how to slow down by with the physiological side, that's sort of a break. And then the yoga nidra is sort of like coming off the accelerator mm, to slow down. Yeah. You're just turning off your system. The beauty of having these different tools and practicing them now and again is that there's this other phenomenon, which is neuroplasticity, which is that then you start doing it reflexively without even realizing it. You start doing physiological size when you're too stressed. But automatically. Automatically, and even before you start to hit the alertness threshold. Interesting. Where you, yeah, people just start to engage these things. And so... It's kind of like when you see a dog who's just tired, it, it automatically does this sigh when it's like panting and it'll do yeah. like a big sigh yeah. and then it's like almost like it's relaxed. That's right. And it's just like it That's goes right. to sleep. That's right. I see this with my dog all the time. They, it's like running around panting and then it's just like. <sighs> exactly. And that little extra inhale, I know we've talked a lot about this before, but I don't think we can overemphasize the power of the physiological sigh because that little extra inhale is what opens up those little sacs in the lungs just a little bit more. And that when you exhale, it pulls a lot more carbon dioxide out of the system. Which, when you pull carbon dioxide out of the system, what does that do? You feel calm. Wow, there In you go. You feel so, calm. In fact- so There's a physiological yeah. mechanism to make you calm. That's right. And in fact, um, you know, in claustrophobic environments, or God forbid, if you're, you know, you're drowning, the reason you're stressed is because you have neurons in your brainstem that sense carbon dioxide in the bloodstream. And as that goes up, it says you need to find air, you need to offload this carbon dioxide. Oh man. So it's, it's a re these are all real physiological mechanisms that are really about balancing the oxygen and carbon dioxide in your system. And when we see these really extreme feats of breath holds and people doing all these really wild things, usually it's because they're learning to manipulate the oxygen carbon dioxide packing or ratios or how they manage them. Free divers the free get very divers, good at yeah. this. There's air packing. There's all sorts of dangerous stuff that should only really be done by highly trained, highly skilled people. But you know, once people have these tools in hand, they can start coupling to them to the tools that involve the mind. I mean it's fine to do a physiological sigh and to tell yourself to calm down. <clears throat> we're not saying don't think or be mindless. Right. But, but what we're saying is it's it's powerful to look to these mechanics of the body-mind relationship. And you said the body and the mind are connected. It's really a two-way street. Mm -hmm. You know, the mind controls the body, the body controls the mind. It's a loop. I just think of it like a loop. Yeah. I don't even think of it as one controlling the other. It's just if one of those things is out of whack, 
you ne- you need to control the other one. Mm-hmm. Right? You're not going to try and just think about trying to control your mind. And again, is like grabbing at fog or at smoke. It's uh, it just moves <laughs> away. So that most of the time. I want to ask you a question. I want to shift gears in a in a in a strategic way. Um, and I love to have practitioners, scientists, doctors. Um, researchers who are into the practicality of things. But I also love to have philosophers, spiritual leaders, and manifestors, like I call, people that are talking about the law of attraction Mm -hmm. and the way we think and how our thoughts allow us to attract the things we want in our life, whether it be a positive thing or something they don't want, but our thoughts really start to attract. And I want to understand the science of the law of attraction. Oh my, okay. Because I recently had the author of The Secret, which has kind of made the law of attraction more mainstream and popularized. This is something that's been around for a long time. The uh, manifesting your thoughts and the law of attraction is not a new thing, but she popularized it with The Secret, Rhonda Byrne. And as I was interviewing her, and I've interviewed a lot of different experts who talk about the law of attraction, it's always been fascinating to hear the results they get in their life based on using this principle called the law of attraction or thinking of certain things that you want, desiring certain things that you want as if it's already happened, imagining as if you already have it, Mm -hmm. visualizing it, and also acting. It's not just thinking and it comes to you, but thinking, manifesting, attracting the people you need in your life for it to, to manifest, taking the actions necessary, learning the skills. But as opposed to having a mind of chaos, it's hard to manifest what we want under a mind of chaos. Mm -hmm. But when we're clearer, we start to manifest those things with a process. Can you break down the science of the law of attraction? Oh my. And and why this idea of thinking a certain thing will manifest, why that is accurate or not? So I I confess I'm not super familiar with it, although I've heard about it. It, um, So law of attraction essentially just being uh, what you think you become, what you think you create, what you, what you think about consistently, you'll start to attract in your life. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the baseline principle. There's more to it, but I'm simplifying it. Okay. So when we think about something consistently in our minds, is there science around this that uh, validates or doesn't validate that we start to, in the physical world, attract our thoughts, oh, whether okay. it be a negative thought about hmm. what I don't want or a thought around what I do want. It's almost like saying, okay, when you think about a pink elephant, you, you see it everywhere. Right. Is, this, is there science to this? So, um, well, I can't give a uh, intelligent answer about the, the law of attraction specifically, but what I can perhaps do is shed some light on what we think we know, what neuroscientists think we know mm-hmm. about um, how thoughts and thinking actually work and how those relate to behaviors. And then I'll give a little anecdote that um, Sweet. that uh, I think people might appreciate because it's something that I keep in mind a lot in thinking about goal setting and mm. focus and okay. this kind of thing. So thoughts are, it, let me back up one second. Um, <laughs> and I know I've covered this before, so I'm gonna cover it very quickly because we talked about this last time, but in case someone um, didn't hear that discussion or, or forgets, Senses are these cells within our body, our eye, our skin, our nose, our, our mouth, it's our, that are taking physical entities in the universe, They're like wavelengths of light, physical touch, and 
translating that into nerve signals, into electrical signals in the body. That's how the nervous system. Senses meaning taste, yeah. feel, yep. sight, hearing, hearing yeah. the five exactly. senses. Gotcha. The five senses. And people always say, well, what about intuition? That's different. That's not a sense. That's a that's a, actually a sense of your internal world. It's called interoception as huh. opposed to exteroception, huh. sense of the outside world. So the five senses. And we are very, whether or not people like it or not, we are heavily constrained by those senses. For instance, a mantis shrimp, of all things, can see like 64 different shades of color that we can only see one shade of, for instance, because they have receptors that can pick out those things. Um, some animals can see ultraviolet emissions, others can see infrared, a pit mm. viper can see your heat emissions. It, you know, humans wow. sometimes think they can see heat emissions, but they can't see heat emissions unless they put infrared goggles on, then they can't. So the senses constrain our experience of the world. And I don't doubt that there are some people that have a little quarter of a percent more UV detection, or mm -hmm. there's even some evidence for weak magnetoreception in humans from good labs. A little really? bit of, yeah, and turtles have very strong magnetoreception. What does that mean, magnetoreception? They can sense magnetic fields, so they sense them as, you know, like that's a magnetically. Humans have, there's some evidence written up in Science Magazine if people want to look, look it up, which is a quality journal for weak magnetic sensing in humans, some no, humans, not strong. but okay. it's not strong, okay? And it's not in most, strong in most people by any stretch. Whereas turtles can navigate long distances based on magnetic fields in the, in That's the ocean. Cool. It's very cool. That's cool. It's very cool. Um, so our experience of the world, all humans experience of the world is kind of tunneled by these, what we can see and what we can't see. There's a lot happening that we can't see. It's just the reality. That's, uh -huh. why we, that's why people need night vision goggles and supposed to just looking at things in the night without <laughs> them. So that's key. So there's sensation and then there's perception, which is simply to say, which of those things are we paying attention to? So I can see that this water bottle is, you know, a mixture of blue and glass and, you know, because I decided to look at it. But I was mm -hmm. sensing it out of the corner of my eye the whole time, but I was focused on right. something. I okay. can sense the right. air touching my skin because right. I'm deciding to focus on that. That's feeling. right. Yeah. That's right. So that's perception. And you want to just make sure that we close the hatch on interoception, perception of what's going on. Like, I don't think about my heart rate too much, but if I stop and think about it, I'm thinking about my heart rate and then I'm just sensing my heart rate. It's, but it's mm -hmm. still just pressure. It's, you know, it's a physical phenomenon. Okay, um, then there's thinking, which we'll get to. Mm -hmm. Then there's emotions slash feelings. And those are complicated, but they are tractable, as we say, we can, we can figure it out. And then there's behaviors, like you're writing right now. It's a measurable thing, it's a real thing. Okay, so what about thoughts? What in the world is thinking? Well, in many ways, thinking is a lot like perception. Perception, again, being which sensations I'm focusing on, except that thinking incorporates sensations from the past, sensations from the present, and can include sensations from the future that we haven't even had yet. Interesting. So this, I think, speaks to your question about law of attraction, which is, you know, never really been formalized in, for the scientific community. So I'm trying to mm -hmm. take, take it and cram it through a neuroscience filter sure. here, see what comes out the other side. But the, the interesting thing about thinking is it's very hard to control our spontaneous thoughts. So for instance, I can't prevent myself from thinking something. However, I can deliberately introduce a thought. People forget this, that one of our enormous powers is, as human beings is, is another form of top-down control which is to say, 
I'm going to write out my name, I am Andrew, or I can think I am Andrew. Now, it takes a little bit of work. You kind of notice to, to think something specific, like you would write it out in your head, just as you would write it out on paper. It feels like a little bit of work because it is work. You're taking that spontaneous thought process and you're inserting a thought on top of it. And we know that you can't hold too many thoughts in mind at once. So the, what I will say is that it's hard to suppress thoughts, but it's actually quite easy to introduce thoughts. And it sounds to me like this, this law is basically a process of introducing thoughts. And when you start introducing thoughts and you start thinking of thoughts as a form of perception, the they, way you view the world, they sh they're going to shape the way you, they're going to shape what you see. Wow. They're very going to he heavily constrain what you see. Now, this has a dark side and a light side. <laughs> and I, I you know, the dark side is, is that beliefs are essentially thoughts that are rec recurring thoughts or things that are kind of like books on a shelf that you can reach to anytime. If I say, hey, what about that book out there? You know, um, Jay Shetty's book, you can go grab it because it's on the shelf right there mm -hmm. and you can show it to me, right? It's there all the time. You know where it is and it's very accessible. Whereas if so you- So belief's a reoccurring thought. Right. So you said? Yeah. yeah. Whereas if you, where, whereas if you have, um, have never thought about something in particular, like um, if I, you know, we start having a discussion about something that you're not very familiar with, or you tell me about something I'm not very familiar with, then it's going to take some work. It mm -hmm. feels like work. So to understand it, to right. perceive it, to experience it, right. to take it in, to, to question your previous beliefs about something, that's all right. that, right? And there's some interesting data that were published in the journal Neuron this last year, not from my group, that show that beliefs actually have their own rewarding quality that there's actually dopamine release associated with beliefs. Having an, a belief. Yes. So when you believe something, you're, there are chemical reward systems in your mind that are associated with just repeating that belief. Now, again, this has a dark side and a light side. The dark side is it means that people can be very fixed in their beliefs and they're actually being chemically rewarded for having the same belief. The world is flat. I believe the world is flat and just saying it over and over right. again. Or in-group, out-group type thinking of any kind. Or what I do you mean in-group, out-group? Well, when people think, oh, I believe that that group of people over there is this way uh, and or good or bad, right? It's, there's a self-reward mechanism mm, that's getting engaged I'm, there. I'm greater than this group. Could be greater than or less, less than. So is, you know, that beliefs are attached to a set of rewards. Interesting. So what the... Now, the dopamine system is exceedingly powerful because dopamine is, is a kind of a dumb molecule. It has no brain of its own. It's just a, it's just a molecule, right? It's just a yeah. chemical. But when dopamine is released in our brain, we, first of all, it tends to orient us towards goals in the outside environment. It's the, it's the molecule, not just of reward, but of motivation. And when we release dopamine, we tend to see the world in terms of external goals. And so you can imagine now if there's a process built up inside us where our thoughts are causing dopamine release and dopamine is shaping what we see as rewards, what we perceive as rewards, that can be wonderful or terrible wow. depending on how that's harnessed. So let me understand this. When we have dopamine uh, triggered in our body, it's attached to, because it's attached to some type of belief, we're gonna to continue to say, this feels good. That's right. So let me keep thinking this way. And viewing the world this in way. In this way, because it's right. gonna keep making me feel good. That's right. Physically. That's right. Wow. Even right. if it's 
fact or not fact, right. scientifically true or, or not true. Or harmful to other people or harmful Ooh. to yourself. If it makes you feel good, you might stick to that belief. That's right. So a good example with dopamine is it, with anytime thinking about science and neuroscience in particular, thinking at the extremes can be kind of useful. Mm -hmm. So people who are very depressed, who see no possibility in the world, mm -hmm. who, if you talk to a depressed person, every response they give is going to be, but it's not gonna work out. It doesn't they work for me. They are absolutely yeah. certain that things are gonna turn out bad. And there's a benefit for having that belief, and right? And they're, they're entrenched in it. They may actually be rewarding that somewhat, although typically depressed states have very low dopamine. Oh. At the opposite extreme is mania. When people are in a manic phase, <laughs> dopamine is very high, we know this, and they see possibility everywhere, and there's certain things are gonna work out. They, they will spend money they don't have, they'll create relationships they don't have time and energy for, they will overdo everything. And so somewhere in the middle is this healthy range where, mm. we're con where we realize that how we view the world is shaping the release of these chemicals. And I do believe this happens when we have positive thoughts, we, we get a lift. If we, if we can get a lift from our positive thoughts, and then dopamine itself puts us in relationship with the outside world such that we view the outside world as having more possibility, that is going to put us into forward momentum. Mm. There's, there, are good, there are a lot of studies to support that. When dopamine is low, we tend to see very little possibility in the world. And So and, a positive thought triggers forward movement, potentially. Yes, yeah. So positive thinking, which a lot of people will say, well, that's just positive thinking, it doesn't work. Some people say, well, be positive, think positive. Others say, well, that doesn't work. But with science, I'm hearing you say it gives you a little bit of a lift. Absolutely. The, the key with positive thinking it, is that it has to be honest. It, it can't be, I've already won, you know, I don't have an Olympic gold medal. <laughs> if I could tell myself I'm gonna get one tomorrow, but I just don't have the skills. Mm -hmm. So that's not gonna release dopamine in my system. How do you know it's honest if you're in a depressed state and you don't believe the that you are actually better off than where you're at. The key is to attach the, so one thing to understand is that dopamine release in the brain is always subjective. There's no experience that, that says, uh, that has unique domain over dopamine release that will only allow dopamine release. So if it's very subjective. So if I say to myself, I'm going to um, get into the process of doing something. We have a new year coming up, so there's gonna be a lot of resolutions soon. The, it's not, a, if you attach the dopamine release to the process of effort or goal setting itself, you'll have more energy to be in effort. And then if you can attach dopamine release to the belief that you're at least heading in the right direction, you'll have more energy to keep going in the right direction. People make the mistake of thinking that the, the positive thought process should be attached to the finish line. It's not about thinking you've already won. It's not about being delusional. It's about thinking that your training is gonna take you to the finish line. And so it's about moving that <clears throat> mental horizon in more close, more closely, and then triggering some sort of positive internal representation of what you're doing, meaning thinking positive. And people, this is usually where I get stopped and people say, wait, but it sounds so subjective. Tell me exactly how to do it. But here's <laughs> the key point. It's, it's supposed to be subjective. This is this for you, right? For, yeah. Everyone needs to figure out what allows them to continue to be in forward momentum, mm. what allows them to, to constrain the world of possibilities and to go after goals and how often to self reward. Because 
the, but the key is the self word, because if you start only pursuing external rewards, that's when you are no longer in control of your dopamine system. Because you're reliant on actually something physically happening in the physical world, not internal. That's reward. right. And let's be really, really honest and burst the, the bubble that I feel like should have been burst a long time ago, which is yes, everybody, including me, it is possible that you can do everything and still fail. No one wants to say that. But the way that you ensure against that is to attach reward to the effort process. Because the dopamine molecule creates a sense of certainty. And you're not trying to create certainty about the final outcome. Mm. You're trying to create certainty only about the next outcome that's en route to the final outcome. Mm. The next action the next, outcome. So yeah. you want to think about milestones. Yes. And so people set out with, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write the great American novel, or I'm going to um, you know, get the IPO. And of course, that's an important, you need to have a sense of what the finish line would actually look like. But the more that one can attach this subjective release of dopamine process to the intermediate steps through positive thinking and action, positive thinking and action, the, the higher that probability goes toward, in science we say there's a probability of zero to one, the higher that probability goes to one, which is certainty. Now, everyone knows in the back of their mind that there is no absolute certainty. When I hear about you know, athletes or fighters, I was certain I was gonna win, we all know that there's a point zero 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 doubt in everybody. Right. Point zero zero whatever that is. Now, for some people, they might be able to push that number way way out. But certainty about outcome is actually a form of delusion. <laughs> certainty it's about like a mania. Yeah. That's right. Like, Cer that's right. You see this in mania, mm -hmm. and that's why people start engaging they're, they're in behaviors that are fixated on like right. this is going to happen. That's right. The silver lining in this is that when you create certainty about outcomes you know you can control, you take over this neurobiological system and you create almost certainty that you will complete the process to the end goal perfectly. Right. And by perfectly, I don't mean that you won't have to re-steer or orient differently along the way. What I mean is that you're, you're learning to engage a process. My friend, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I told you it would be a powerful one. If you enjoyed it and you got value out of this, then please pay it forward. If you want to see someone else continue to improve their life and expand their awareness and use these tools to help them grow, then make sure to just copy and paste the link or just share lewishouse.com slash 1072 and tell a friend to check it out, listen, and then give you notes back. Hey, what did you learn? What did you like about this? And share this with someone that you think would find it very interesting. Again, if this is your first time here, please click the subscribe button right now on Apple Podcast and Spotify and check us out on YouTube. We've got over a million subscribers over there, some incredible videos with millions of views. So make sure to check that out for more content and extended videos over there. And leave us a rating and review. Every time we get a subscriber, a rating, or review, it helps us improve the quality of this show, but also it helps us spread the message of greatness to more people. So every time you share it, every time you listen, you rate or review, you are helping us reach more lives and change and impact more people around the world. And that's what I'm all about, reaching and impacting more lives. So thank you for all your support on the School of Greatness. And if you want inspirational messages every single week, then I want you to text the word podcast right now to 614-350-3960. And let's stay connected over text messaging there. And I want to leave you with this quote from Mr. Fred Rogers, who said, 
In times of stress, the best thing we can do for each other is to listen with our ears and our hearts and to be assured that our questions are just as important as our answers. And I want to remind you, if no one's told you lately, that you are loved, you are worthy, and you matter. And I'm so grateful for your time today. And you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.